Blog Talk Radio. Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Who are the unstoppable ones? Is it just that they can do it and I can't? Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. Mission Unstoppable. The Unstoppable Ones. You did say unstoppable, right? Yeah. You did say unstoppable, right? What is it they know that I don't? Coach Frankie Picasso takes you on the Mission Unstoppable. Anyone stop these people? Good evening and welcome to Mission Unstoppable. I am the Unstoppable Coach Frankie Picasso and tonight I am going to take you on another Mission Unstoppable to a place where everyone goes and few come back. Tonight we're going to the place in between life and death with our special guide, a woman who has intimate knowledge of this place. Tonight I have the pleasure of reintroducing you to a lady who is not only a returning guest but one of the most sought after and respected authorities on near-death experiences in the world. She's a pioneer in a world that is shrouded in mysticism, fear, and disbelief, and she paid a heavy personal price for being brave enough to ask questions, speak her truth, and pursue a career among researchers and academics who felt maybe she hadn't paid her dues. Today I can tell you she has more than made the grade, and she is one of the few people in the world that can tell you exactly what happens when you die. And not just from interviewing thousands of individuals who have had near-death experiences, but from her own as well. In fact, she has died three times and still lives to tell the tale. We're going to meet her in just a moment, but first stay tuned, stay close. The time is 8 p.m. in Toronto, 5 in Los Angeles, and 7 in Chicago. I'd like to thank the good folks here at Blog Talk Radio for allowing me to broadcast over their network, and I especially like to thank you, yes, you know who you are, for tuning in each and every week. Thank you so much. Tonight we're going to meet Dr. PMH Atwater, the woman first. And we started to speak to her, uh, I guess it was back in August, about her life and who she was because, you know, we had spoken to her a bit about her career, but I really wanted to know who this woman was. She's walked the planet now for 71 years. She knows an awful lot of things. And I thought it would be really exciting for us to understand the changes uh, that have taken place during her lifetime and, and what drove her to become this leading authority that she is. Afterwards, we're going to speak to her as the author and scientist, um, as someone who's been studying the phenomenon since 1978 of near-death experiences, and we're going to look at the research and the revised editions of her first book, which just came back out again, Coming Back to Life. Dr. Um, Atwater has at least 10 books to her credit, and we will discuss their names, where you can find them during the show. But for now, the chat room is open, and I encourage you to call in with your own near-death experience stories or to ask Dr. Atwater a question during the show. The number to call is 646-595-3741. And without further ado, good evening, Dr. Atwater. Hi. <laughs> How are you? You know, it sounded so strange to hear you <laughs> say, having walked the planet for 71 years. You know, I never thought yeah, of it that way. Up. I know. It's amazing. Isn't that fun? Yeah. You know, we, we talked last time you were here. We, we, we went back uh, to Twin Falls, Idaho. <laughs> yes, where I was born. And, <laughs> yeah, and you had some amazing, you know, parents, really. You had your own mom and, and you had, you know, I guess, step-parents. And, well, I had and, all and, kinds of parents. I had five yeah. fathers and two mothers and wound up raising myself. So it was kind of a, a different kind of life. It was, especially back then. Like that kind <laughs> yes. of stuff didn't happen back then. <laughs> no, it didn't, but, yeah, you know, it did to me. But it happened to you. <laughs> but it happened to you. So um, I think we got up to the point, um, your, 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 your stepfather, the sheriff, uh, became a big Well, no, in he's life. a police officer. Police officer, sorry. Yeah, he's not a sheriff. He's a police officer. Okay, and he became kind of a big influence in your life. Um, you, you mentioned on one of my other shows, I think, how he, um, just the, the way that you started to look at things, the way he had taught you to, to look at strangers, to look at, you know, facts and, and, and things and stay focused about where you were. Um, you want to talk about that a little bit? Well, I can certainly mention that, and we can certainly use that as a springboard. Um, I do call him dad. As far as I'm concerned, he is my dad. It took me three years, though, to accept the man. He scared me. He frightened me. Um, I had reached a point at that time in my life where um, the idea of a father meant absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. 
I'd been through a number of men that I was told to call father, and they all either frightened me or scared me or didn't make any sense to me. And I just got to the po point where the idea of a father had absolutely no meaning. So this man comes into my life, my mother's final husband and final lover, uh, final in the sense of she finally met the one. It just took a long time. And when he came into my life, there was, there was no, no invitation. There was no willingness. There was no excitement. There was no um, encouragement at all. He was just another man. So it took a long time, three years, for me to get to the point where I could even stand him, where, where, wow. he, where he had any value to me. So during those three years, are the same three years, when he, he raised me in a very odd way. Now, bear in mind that he didn't come into my life until, gee, I think it was like the third grade. So I was older. And... Um, um, well, of course, he's a police officer, and, and he's very disturbed himself by what he's finding in the field. Let's, let, let's say, for instance, there's a, there's a car crash, mm -hmm. and there are four witnesses. Each one would have a different idea of what happened, and right. it drove the guy crazy. Yeah. And I, I really think he was trying to raise the world's most perfect witness oh, <laughs> because he wow. had this interesting way of raising me. Yeah. Um, just clear out of, the, out of the clear blue sky, no warning, always with the same MO. He, he, he'd suddenly grab me by the shoulders, twirl me around, look at me eyeball to eyeball and say, all right, now describe that man that just went by. And, and we'd have this checklist. You know, describe his hair, is he wearing a part, any glasses, any distinguishing features, any hat. Describe the clothing, is there a belt, is there shoes, is there a watch. Describe the socks, and on and on and on. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a typical little kid. In those days, we had the five and dime stores, you know, where yeah. you'd go in and you'd shop. And they didn't have shelving in those days like they do now. Everything was eye level, and everything was covered with glass. So, you, so you'd go into a store, and of course everything's eye level covered with glass. That means all the glitter is where you can see it. And I'm a yeah. gog, like any kid. And, yeah. you know, I'm looking at all this. And then Dad would always, you know, say, Memo, grab me by the shoulders, twirl me around, eyeball to eyeball. All right, now describe that woman that just went by. He did that off and on for three years. And I got to the point where I was just staring at everybody and studying everything because I never knew when he was going to do this. And he scared me spitless. <laughs> and, you know, it was just such a, um, oh, it was just such, 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 such a, a heavy thing. You know, I, yeah. I had to pass. I, I, I had to please him. You know, most children will try to please their parents. Sure. So, you know, got to please this man. <laughs> so during those three years where I couldn't accept him, I didn't understand him. He was just another man. He was just another dad. He was just another thing called father. We're the same yeah. three years when he's raising me in this manner. So, of course, there was a lot of counterpoints here. There's a lot of things going on. And he also had... Oh, well, l let me put it this way. Um, if I were late from school, we lived outside of town. That meant I would m miss the school bus. So I'd have to walk mm -hmm. to the police station and go home with him during coffee breaks. Or if Mom and I were shopping uptown and we needed a ride home, we'd go to the police station and we would wait until there was a coffee break and he would take me home. He would take us home. Mm -hmm. I, I literally was raised in the police station. That was my second home. I was there a lot. Mm -hmm. So I got to know things, got to see things, got to read things. And in those days, people weren't all that fussy. 
Oh, yeah, they were fussy, but not all that fussy. I mean, who pays attention to a little girl? You know, now, did you talk at all, or were you the silent witness all the time? No, you always have to be kind. You always have to be silent, unless you're talking to the uh, guy at the desk, and if he has a little extra time, you could talk to him. But that's about it. So I would walk over by the the um, interrogation room, and they'd always have the door shut. But in those days, they had the real skeleton key and long keyhole. So I would go, and it was just my size. Yeah. <laughs> so I'd go over to the keyhole, and I'd look inside, you know, and I could see the people. And I'd, and I'd put my ear up, and I'd listen to, you know, the police officer and the detective and the victim and, you know, all these things that they're saying. And invariably, I kid you not, frankly, Frankie, invariably, the victim would always say, well, I just knew if I opened that door, something awful yeah. happened. Or they yeah, would so say, why did you open the door? I just knew, you know, if I yeah. went tonight with all the other guys, there'd be an accident or something bad yeah. would happen. And, yeah. and, you know, there was never an exception. And so I, in my young mind, would say to myself, well, <laughs> if they knew, yeah. why did they do it? Exactly. So I decided at that very young age that all adults are stupid, and when I grew up, I was not going to be an adult. You were well, going to be an adult. <laughs> okay. Of course I grew up stupid like all other adults and had to relearn everything. But, yeah, okay. and, and, of course, there were other, you know, orders from headquarters, like when my dad took me home uh, in the squad car during a coffee break, I... And, and a call came through, I'd have to go with him. Uh-huh. So hit the floor meant a chase, and we'd go around, around a corner on two wheels. Didn't happen very often, but did happen a couple of times. So yeah. I would hit the floor. Um, but very often I was at the scene of muggings or beatings or once in a while an attempted murder or drunks or, you know, whatever. You know, in those days, we didn't have television, so my television screen was literally the squad car windshield. That was my TV screen. And, 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 and the understanding always was um, be invisible. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I can't move. I can't talk. I can't, I can't, <clears throat> I can't do anything. I have to be invisible. So I'm sitting in the squad car, usually in the back seat, and I'm looking through the windshield, and I'm seeing what's happening. And many times at night, even, and I'm seeing all this drama happening before my eyes, and all I can do is listen and watch. So I did. I watched how people's bodies moved. I watched... The um, the impact that words would have on people and how they would respond and any difference a word that is said would have and intona- intonations and expressions and faces and you know what the body does and and I just sort of grew up being an observer. <laughs> That's the only thing I could do is just wow. be an observer. So I grew up that way. So I had this kind of odd childhood. But also because, because that same time was a very mixed up time for me. Mixed up because um, I, I just was so torn between the two mothers. My biological mother and the mother that raised me. Very, very different people. I couldn't talk and walk in one house the same way I could talk and walk in another house. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would upset the other woman. So I, got, I couldn't even make the bed the same way in the two houses. So uh, times were very confusing for me. Plus I was born, you know, we know now, didn't know then, I was mm-hmm. born with dyslexia and stenesthesia, which is multiple sensing. And I developed stuttering. Uh, 
and and the nightmare of the first grade was just uh, can't even begin to get into that stuff. I mean, in the, you know, it's World War Two, Pearl Harbor. You know, and you're wow. walking to school, and there's all these gold stars in people's windows. That's what they gave out then was a large gold star decal that you had to put in the or you didn't have to, but you could put in your front living room window as as a sign that someone in your family had died during the war effort. Well, little kids know what's going on, so I'm walking yeah. to school, and you're seeing all these gold stars. Well, gold star meant death. Yeah. And this this one house had six new gold stars overnight. Oh, wow. And I just stood there and sobbed. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember, Frankie, I can't remember one single morning of the first grade when I didn't have to quiet my my shutters and stop my sobs just to walk into my classroom. Wow. I, I, I you mean, were it was so sensitive, weren't you? It, it, it was it was horrible. It was just horrible. And uh, all throughout my growing years, I could never understand why a teacher would give a child a gold star for doing a good job. Oh, wow. Because a gold star meant death. Uh, yeah. I, I couldn't, uh, I couldn't make so peace with gold until I was 50. I couldn't wear it until I was 60. Wow. I just was very, very uncomfortable with gold. So I'm I'm growing up in this very un, unusual time, at least in my life, my mother's life, yeah. where, where I'm also um, wide open to nature and everything else. I mean, I could I could go to a person's home, um, go outside, and and run my hands through the dirt near their home and just let it sift through my fingers, and I could tell you about. Um, the people's health that live in that home, that was always accurate. I could look in the sky and see the swirls and the way the sky went, and I would know uh, uh, about the weather that was coming. Again, I was always accurate. Um, one of the things that saved my life was walking up in the high pasture and sitting on a log, bright daylight, and I would see... Um, the spirit keepers emerge from the soil. Spirit keepers are sort of like that substance that holds the world together. It, it, it's that substance or energy, I don't even know what to call it, that literally is the glue that holds the world together, the substance of the world, the matter together. Right. And, and they, call themselves, they, they call themselves spirit keepers. And they would emerge from the ground like a mountain bills, you know, really big on the bottom, and they'd come up to kind of like a top. And I would imagine, you know, a head and, and face and ears and mouth and hair, but none of that was there. And, but you could see through them. And, oh, wow. and they, would, they would rise up all around me. And it's these spirit keepers that, that put up with me, um, would talk to me and teach me things, and 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 they accepted me, and and that really kept me from going over the edge. What was the spirit keepers? The, they enabled me to keep my sanity. So all of this is happening at the same time as what is also happening in school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was fighting school. I, I just hated school because, you know, I was a little different anyway. Well, and you weren't we didn't like anybody in the <laughs> well, you, know, you, you didn't have special education teachers then. I mean, nobody would yeah. ever heard of dyslexia. What's that? And, yeah. and still today, most people don't even know what synesthesia is, let alone back then. You know, I was the only kid in class who could, who could see music, hear numbers, and smell color. Right. You know, it didn't go over very well. They talk to spirit people. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, now, were you were you precocious as a child, or or were you kind of shy and quiet? Which way did you go? Ooh, sometimes I was very aggressive and loud. Mm-hmm. Other times I was very very quiet, quiet and did my own thing. And other times I was very very angry, almost to the point of being violent. 
So I don't know how I would answer that. What about that. high school? What happened in high school? Were you, were you? Um, I, I just read about about your 50 year reunion in high school. I'm not sure what how old that blog was. Um, when was that? Um, there's a there's an article on my website called Going Back to Idaho. Yeah, and it's about my 50th. Um, yeah. High school reunion. I, I started coming out of all of my problems with school and at home at, at, in the seventh grade. About the okay. time that most kids start getting, uh, going bad, uh, if you will, or having great problems, I was coming out of them. Out of your problems, right? Yeah. And, and so about the seventh grade from then on, because I had some very creative teachers who helped me. I had some incidences occur that helped me and really made the difference. So when I finally graduated, uh, I, I, I had finally decided in high school that when in Rome you do as the Romans do. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the people on earth <laughs> don't yeah. quite seem to be like me, so I'll be like all the other people on earth. So I just decided, you know, to be like everyone else. So, therefore, when I graduated from high school, I tell everybody I graduated in the upper 11% because I missed the upper 10% by one point. (laughs) So I told everybody I graduated in the upper 11%. (laughs) So after high school, because I I really want to – we're going to run out of time again. That's how we are. Yeah. So let's let's get into some more meat and potatoes. How old were you – when you when you first got married and and had your children, how 18. old were you around? You were eighteen. 18. Wow, 18. that was young. That was considered old. Really? Back then, that was considered old. I was going to be just An old a, you know just a <laughs> uh, you know wow. just a marm, you know <laughs> because most That's of the kids cool. were married at sixteen, seventeen. Holy and the fact wow. that I didn't marry until I was 18, I really had my aunts, and I had many of them. Uh, I think I had about five, aunt, five aunts and other family members, um, all very, very concerned about me and very worried about me that I would not find a man and I would not get married. So did they all do trolling for you and came up with the best candidate? <laughs> yeah, well, sort of. Something like that, huh? I did get married and um, had my first had child. Kids, I had three children. Mm-hmm. Yep. Had my first child when I was not quite twenty, and uh, and then the next year had another one, and a number of years later had a third one, and we had planned to go on and have uh, a second family, that is to say, more and more, but we ran out of money, and just. Wow felt that that would not be fair to the three we had if we had more. Mm-hmm. So we quit. So I have one boy and two girls. And, you know, the so I, 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 I'm, I, the research started when, I mean, we, we, I started with, with your father, the police officer, because I remembered you were talking about when you first started to do the research into near-death experiences and the problems that you had with the academia, um, you used the tools that he gave you, those tools of, of He started teaching me police investigative techniques at the age of nine. That's exactly what he was doing. Right. So when you when you decided to how okay, you know, let's back up here. How does this woman, you know, this mother of eight at eighteen of three kids begin to talk about to research near death experiences and become a world expert? How did this happen? It it happened when I died. It happened in my third near-death experience when I reached okay. the, the point that we in research call the realm of all-knowing. That's when all the puzzle pieces of life are revealed to you. Your questions are answered, like why did Aunt Tilly lose a leg? What is the purpose of war? You know, all these great questions that we have uh, that many ask, when they when they reach that realm or dimension on the other side of life, um, I reached that too, went through that, was able to witness creation itself. I, I, I truly, honestly feel 
that I was at the center point of, of creation and was able to actually witness it. And when all of that had finished or occurred or at some point during that, a voice spoke. And that voice, I've, I've been a meditator and teaching meditation for over a decade before I died. I had very, very familiar with angel voices, guides and guardians and this kind of thing. I had been researching altered states of consciousness for over a decade. Um, so these kinds of things were very familiar to me. Mm -hmm. uh, but the voice I heard, the voice that spoke to me, wasn't like anything I'd ever heard or heard of. That voice owned the universe. You know, it, it just it owned the universe. The universe was that voice. That voice was the universe. It, it, it was so distinctive that I, I've never heard a voice like that ever since. And I called it the voice like none other. And my sense was that voice was of God. And was it, it the third time? Or, or was the third time. My third near-death experience. My, my third death and near-death experience. And that voice said, and I quote, test revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death. I was shown what that meant. Mm -hmm. Book one was not named. Books two and three were named. I was shown what was to be in each book, but not how to do the work or how long it might take me. And I came back to life to do the work. There was no um, question in my mind. There was no second thought in my mind, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it took me a year to be basically human again. You know, most of us, when we think of the near-death experience, we forget that most of these cases come from violence and trauma. So you're mm -hmm. dealing with rebuilding a body right. as well as dealing with what happened to you on the other side of life, on the other, yeah, on the other side of, yeah, on. And, and, and so you're, you're dealing with a lot of stuff, and first things first. And the first thing I had to take care of was, was a body that wasn't functioning. Mm -hmm. So I had to relearn how to crawl, how to stand, how to walk, how to run, how to climb stairs, how to tell the difference between left and right, how to see properly, hear properly, and rebuild all my belief systems. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was just struggle. It was, it was, I dealt with a lot of fear. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's just like, you know, people taught, near-death experiences talk a lot about heaven and all these wonderful things. To me, at that point, heaven was that bright, sunny day in, in downtown Boise, Idaho, when I could run a full block and I didn't fall down and there was no pain. Right. That was heaven. That was heaven. So you it wrote about the experience of, of other near-death experiences, though, having a commonality, having seven or more um, common symptoms, if you will. I'm not sure what, what you call them. Um, that, characteristics. That are, okay, characteristics that, that most people don't talk about. Um, maybe they haven't put it together yet, but you did. You were able to capture this um, in, in, in one of the books. Um, well, well, that's my first book, Coming Back to Life. Coming Back to Life. Okay. I began my research in November of 1978 after having met Elizabeth Kubler-Ross at O'Hare Airport in Chicago. This and, is a good story. This is um, a good story. <laughs> her, her plane was an hour late to Europe. So I met her there, and we we sat down on a bench and just talked and chattered away like a couple of schoolgirls. Schoolgirls, yeah. And I, and I told her my three experiences. She's the one who named me a near-death survivor. She did not say experiencer. She said survivor. And she told me about the near-death experience. She did not mention Raymond Moody's name, nor did she mention the name of the book, Life After Life. I'd never heard of either of those. My only introduction to the near-death experience came through Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. Well, you know, that's wonderful to be validated. 
Yeah. But being with her caused me more questions than it did give me answers. So I began my work a couple of months after I had met her. So, so that was in November. Uh, in November 1978, since then, now, I've been doing this for 30 years. And the way you do it is, is, is you just step out. And and I and I must also admit that in the, in the early years, and this is talked about a lot in my first book, Coming Back to Life, which is now um, out again. It has has been reissued. It was reissued just just this summer, so it's it's now just new and and back out again. And that's the book that's raw. It's the book that's naked. It's the book that just comes out and says what it says. And I and it I got it raw and naked. I was, oh, I know. got in a lot of trouble writing that book. <laughs> I love that book. I love that book, and I, you know, I have the pleasure of being the first interview for for you know uh, on, yeah. on the issue of that book. But um, yep, but it was you really put it out there, and like I think I teased you about. Um, I think maybe the first time I interviewed you, you had um, we were talking about the big book of near-death experience. And, and right, that's, about, that's my latest in the big book. <laughs> about PMH, and it was like, you know, I said, I didn't know what P, what P stood for until I read Coming Back. <laughs> I go, oh, I know the secret, I know the secret. <laughs> no, you don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's my nickname. Well, anyway. Yeah. So that was so cute. And, and um, But that book, you, I was... Yeah, you were in, in, inexperienced in, I guess, being a writer, but you sure weren't inexperienced in, in what you wrote. And I think it, it's very readable. It's very, um, it's you. It's definitely you. Anybody who, who's listening to you will know, boy, that was PMH. And she, you know, you poured your heart and soul out and, and were as honest as you could possibly be. And, yeah, it was raw and it was naked, but it was so powerful. So I really acknowledge you for that. Oh, well, bless your heart. Um you know, I got into so much trouble writing that book. And and it might not hurt to do just kind of a brief review of why I got in trouble for writing. Yeah, let's, back do, to let's life. talk about that one. Because that, in the intro, you know? that will bring us up to date with what's happening in my life right now, um, which I feel is significant. Maybe nobody else will, but at least it's significant for me. Um, where I got in trouble with... Coming back to life. Number one, I was a woman. If you don't think that doesn't make a difference in research, you're living on another planet. Number two, I did not have a degree at that time. Uh, since uh, since then, of course, I, I I finally got a degree, and I got it in Montreal, Quebec, by the way. Got it in Canada, not the United States. Um, I was a near-death experiencer, and that also, um, you know, caused people to kind of Twitter and wonder if I knew what I was talking about, could I possibly be objective? And then then the rest of it, I talked about hell, I talked about heaven, I talked about suicide, I talked about depression, I talked about children's cases, I talked about the kinds of things nobody, but nobody was talking about. It was not yeah, in any book. Nobody approached those subjects at all, let alone the kind of challenges experiencers were having in integrating the experience. And that just put me, you know, <laughs> out there. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it made, well, uh, I was prepared. I was prepared for being maybe attacked or criticized by the general public or maybe by fundamentalist religionists or, you know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They loved me. They loved yeah. I didn't have problems with any of these folk. The people that I had problems with were my peer group and other experiencers, believe it or wow. not. Because in those days, if you didn't have the stereotypical kind of experiencer experience yeah. you you were a phony. So you didn't you didn't have the come to the light experience. Is that what you're well, saying? Well mine mine deviated a little bit and it did yeah. not occur in a hospital. And you talk in about those days that was a big deal. 
you talk about in the book about four main types of experiences. Let's let's talk about that for a second. Um, well, there, there's the uh, this is what I've identified in my own work. There, there is the initial experience. I call it initial because it only consists of maybe one aspect or maybe two or three, no more than that. Um, people are met by something like the living dark or the loving nothingness, or maybe it's a quick out-of-body experience, or maybe there's a greeter of some kind, and that's all. That's all there is. Or maybe a friendly voice. And children children have a lot of these. Adults have, have, have these too, but especially children. It's like over... Mm-hmm. Over 70% of the kids will have these kinds of experiences. They're, very, they're usually very short, um, but they're very impactful. You know, you're always looking for after effects. It's the after effects that validate the experience, not the other way around. So you're looking for that pattern of after effects, which is both physiological as well as psychological. And I was finding that pattern in, in, in these initial cases. And no one could believe me. They all all said, no, these are just figments of the experience. Or these are just incomplete experiences. Incomplete my foot. You know, if you're... Incomplete. Didn't die long enough. Go back and do it again. (laughs) Well, you know, you're looking for impact and intensity, and it's there. And then, of course, the hellish or unpleasant experience. Nobody was talking about that. I found a lot of them. They're not rare. Mm-hmm. Then there's the heavenly or pleasant experience. Um, most of us are familiar with that one. That's the one that's in most of the books, on television, the documentaries, so forth and so on, when not even half of the people have it. Mm-hmm. And then there's, the, and then I, you know, the transcendent experience. This is usually the longest and most complex, although not all, always, but usually. Very seldom is the trans, transcendent experience personal. Very, very seldom. You almost never get a life review in one of these. Okay. These are the people that are exposed to the history of humanity, of humankind, maybe the history of the universe, they might wind up in some kind of college being taught on the other side. They might hop a light ray and tour the universe. You know, these these are the more complex ones. Uh, invariably, an experiencer who has a transcendent experience will be those the most committed to being movers and shakers when they come back. They want to make a difference in the world Mm -hmm. and a big difference in the world if they possibly can because of their experience. They are the change agents. And I'm not saying that you can't be that way if you had one of the other experiences, but I am saying that you recognize that more with the transcendent cases. And you find this the same in children, although I've yet to find a child um, over the age of puberty who had a transcendent experience. Is there is, was there anything around um, any kind of commonality? Any kind of it, it seems hard to imagine, but there is. But did they have to go that far to to to, to for you to die and come back to give you that same message? Could, could they not have done it a different way? You know, when you say they, are you talking about the other spirit? Side I'm talking or, about spirit or the other side or, or the guides or whoever's talking to you. I don't know. I never thought about it. I never thought about it. That, that, that never concerned me. I never said, why me? I, I never wondered why this happened to me. It, those questions were never there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, when you're saying... Why me? You can also say why not me. Oh, so and I wasn't, I wasn't saying. Yeah, I, I guess the question came from from the perspective of you know when I had my really bad accident and I kind of like yourself, I knew why it happened, but I I was also told later that um, they they felt that it had gone a bit too far, um, that it didn't need to go as far as it did in order for me to get the message I was supposed to get. 
So I just wondered if, you know, do people have to die in, to, to get no, to certainly the not. Methods? No, certainly not. Uh, you can you can get the same understanding or a similar understanding from any kind of transformation of consciousness, whether it's a Kundalini mm-hmm. breakthrough or shamanic vision quest or baptism of the Holy Spirit or religious and spiritual disciplines. You know, mm-hmm. you don't have to go through what I went through. Um, you know, I, I love to tell this little story about my husband who has the same understandings or similar to mine. Yeah. I, I mean, the story. You know, it, we're a perfect match. And yeah. he's got his through becoming a karate monk. Really, he went into the monkhood aspect of karate and wow. uh, transcendental medita- meditation. He was one of the Maharishi's kids. Well, anyway, um, um, we were talking about this one, one day. And I was pounding the table. And I, you know, I tend to be a little more de- demonstrative than Terry. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Anyway, I was pounding the table, and I said, this isn't fair. I had to bleed and suffer for what I learned. And you got it so easy. And well, he, he, he was patting my, my head like and, a little puppy dog, and he, and, yeah. he, and he said to me, well, he said, I have a theory about that. And he went on to explain himself, and he said, it's my thinking that those people who need more of a shove in life get experiences like you. The rest no. of us don't need it. <laughs> yeah, okay. And I think the man's right. Look, I yeah. died three times, not once. But I call it the heavenly sledgehammer effect. <laughs> okay, he, he had the same experience, but did he come back with the same characteristics as those who have died. He did not have the same experience in the sense of dying. He learned the same things through uh, a very different kind of modality. In other words, by becoming a karate monk, by getting into transcendental meditation, through that route, he... um, that then helped him to begin what we often call the inner journey or the inner process of of learning more about himself and what life is really all about and how to live. Let's but talk about I got it, it through violence. So I, I've talked about it, and people are probably wondering, what the heck is she talking about? So some of the elements were that you came back with this unconditional love for humanity, um, but 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 the love of, of a partner was a little bit more difficult to do. You came back with a more um, intense psychic um, uh, ability. They come back with uh, feeling a little out of sorts, I guess, in their own body and, and in their families. And, and what, what else? Well, you don't really fit. You really just don't, you don't fit quite you know, like you did before. But you see, Terry got all of that, but he didn't have to have the pain and the violence. Uh, okay, karate that's violence. what I was getting at. Did he? Did he still get those? We got his through the discipline of karate, okay, and becoming a karate monk, which is very strict, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like kung fu, only it's karate, mm-hmm. and and through transcendental meditation. So he went the other route and got essentially the same thing. Came essentially to the same place in his understanding. So How long do you did have to, to do that? Um, almost as long as it did me. Oh, really? It was a long process. It did not happen in a year or two. Okay. But you died. Yeah, I mean, any idea <laughs> that spiritual enlightenment comes in a year or two is a phony idea. Sure. It takes time. It's like peeling an onion. You know, and each layer gets a little bit shorter, and it's quicker to peel, and, you know, eventually get to the core of that onion. Um, This idea of learning what it's all about, Alfie, kind of thing, it it just takes time. Once you think you've got it, then you find out, oops, oops, forgot a few things. I really don't have it after all. And you get that understood, and, and you come to find out, well, I didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not as smart as I thought I was because, wow. you know, we're always coming back to integration. We're always coming back to applying what you know. 
And that's where you get caught, is in applying what you know. Because invariably something will happen that will just punch all your buttons. And you find out, well, hmm, I didn't understand that (laughs) that well. (laughs) I really didn't handle that in a way that I wish I could have. And, and and that kind of, kind of brings us up to what's happening in my life right now mm-hmm. because it, it's just um, overwhelming and exciting and awful and wonderful all at the same time. Okay, I've now written nine books on my findings. I've written lots of other books, but nine books on my uh, research findings. I'm also a generational researcher, so I've gotten into the new kids and all this other kind of stuff. Right, you write a lot. We're not of talking over. about that. We're just yeah. talking about near-death uh, research. I've written nine books on my findings. Uh, I'm now on the tenth. The tenth is the last one. It's the one where I finish my research and complete my theoretical model. So it's the last book. What's happening in my life right now is the circle is closing. Mm -hmm. I say that because, believe it or not, Frankie, all of the blocks and and, and attacks and negativity and difficulty I had in writing the first book, Coming Back to Life, Mm -hmm. and in having that book published and accepted, all of those have come back within the last week and a half. Wow. If you don't believe me, get on Amazon.com, go to the big book of near-death experiences and start reading the reviews. On page two is this awful attack that shreds the book Really? by a fellow researcher. He shredded my work before. Just get on my website, pmhatwater.com, get in the article section, and and you'll see where he attacked my work before because I got his permission to put it on my website because I wanted everybody to know the various sides of what he's talking about. So all the different people involved get their stuff on my website. Um, You know, I really believe that everybody should know. So he's on there. Well, he's a man who's... None of this happened until after I refused to review a book by his Uh, The publisher sent me the book. I I read it over, stem to stern, and felt that it was shallow work, that it was not good research, and I wrote the publisher back and said, I'm sorry, I will not be able to review this book. Well, then they sent my letter on to him, and I guess he's been after me ever since. I don't know. And then then get on Amazon.com for We, uh, We Live Forever. Another book I wrote, We Live Forever. Get into the review section. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also on page two. There's a couple of reviews, but one in particular, where the woman in essence says that she got to that part of the book where I, I talk about some of my own near-death experiences and, and the fact of the doctor who didn't treat me right and the various problems I had with medicine and why didn't I sue the guy for, you know, being a quack? Why, you know, why, why wasn't I hospitalized? And because of that and only that, she considers me to be a phony. The book is, is not worth reading, and she tosses the book. Wow. Just because. My my case was not the stereotypical kind of case. It's more raw. A lot of cases are blood and guts all over the floor. Maybe blood yeah. and guts all over the accident scene. Maybe, uh, uh, you know, a lot of cases come from medical mistakes. Mm-hmm. And not all of us can sue the guys or gals. In my case, yeah. two other people beat me to the point and sued the guy for malpractice. And I read that in the paper, and I thought to my, and I was planning on doing it myself. I read that in the paper, and I thought, gee, you know, I'm not after blood, blood money. I just want the public to know about this doctor. And I figured the other two people's case would be enough. 
So I, I didn't pursue it. So she condemns me because I didn't pursue it. You know, I happen to love the big book of near-death experiences. I'm on the website right now. I'm reading these these reviews. Um, Are you you there? Are you reading them on Amazon.com? I'm reading This is real. Yeah, yeah, I'm reading them right now. And every one of those things that I had trouble with before, including a a steep reduction in my my royalties because people aren't buying books right now, um, and, and just one right after another, some of the same people, uh, including experiencers that I had I had challenges with before are back, and and it's like I'm looking at all of this and I'm I'm recognizing that a circle is closing. I'm yeah. back where I was to begin with, and all this stuff is coming back. And and just in the last couple of weeks, I've taken on as a spiritual discipline to to look for the perfection in whatever is happening. Mm-hmm. So I do my little screaming because I honor my my physical self and I honor my human self, and I'll do my little screaming, and then I step back and I look for the perfection. Mm-hmm. And when you look for the perfection in the return of of all that I faced before, all that I faced in doing my research, and the fact that I'm completing my work. That, dear, is the explanation of why I am here, why I was born, what it's all about, and and it really, really, at least for me, gives me great peace that it is all part of a divine timing and that it, it is all enfolding in the best possible way. I could have never done the work I did without my strange and screwy childhood. I I would never have had the passion and the determination to to write all the books I have done, to do all the research I have done, had I not been condemned for my work. You know, sometimes failure is good for you. Oh, absolutely. Oh, I believe that wholeheartedly. What made me unstoppable was that passion of being in God's presence, hearing those words, and coming back and seeing no other reality but the fulfillment of what I was told to do. You know, it's interesting that somebody can say that you don't know what you're talking about if they have not walked in your shoes and died. I mean, even from that perspective, having died three times, you can, you know, give your own perspective. Um, having interviewed, you know, the 4,000-plus people that you have, uh, you, you've certainly got a well, lot of nearly 4, their experiences. Nearly 4,000. Yeah. You, you've, you've gotten their experiences. Um, it, it's, it is interesting. And you're right. Uh, to, f- to find the perfection in the moment is probably the best way to go. And 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 as the circle closes, a new one opens, and you'll be looking at onward and upward. <laughs> so I have to ask. Do you know what else is starting probably... to happen now? Do we have a couple of minutes? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was at the ARE, which is the Association for Research and Enlightenment, in August because I was one of the speakers, and I had a little extra time, and I know Robert Grant, so he was holding an inspirational writing workshop, and I had some extra time, and I figured I'd go attend, and you know, here's this big countdown about what you can do and what can come forth from the inner self. And all these inspirational things that can, can come from your writing. So it got us all in this relaxed state. And the lights are low. And I decided, eh, I'll just take a nap. <laughs> <laughs> and I feel this little warm body on my right shoulder. And, and two little paws on either side of my right ear. I mean physically. And I'm aware of this little nose coming into my right ear. And I hear this tiny little voice say, Hello, my name is Henry Baby, And I have a story to tell you. And I, 
I wrote it down. Yeah. And and there's been six more come through. And there's supposed to be maybe fifteen to twenty. And and you know, their children's That's books. Enough. Their children's books. It's a series of children's books that wow. help them um return to the womb. And remember being born, remember the time in the womb, remember being born, remember seeing spirit on both sides, remember what death is really like and, and you know, all different kinds and ways of dying for the purpose of helping children to remember, to help parents be able to talk to their kids about these kinds of things. Because mm-hmm. in my research of, of the new children, half could remember their birth. A third had pre-birth memory. Wow. I mean, these kids know this. They remember this. They want to talk about this. But what parent will talk about it? Yeah, right. They think you're and so here's them. these little animals coming forward. And 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 their stories, they're all short little stories about just that. So God only knows where that's going to go. You know, I'm supposed to be writing my 10th book, you know, on my research findings. So here I am minding my own business when this this little critter comes to call. So I sent out, you know, I did the the little story, six of them as an example, and with my proposal and sent it out to my agent last week. So I don't know. Wow. That's pretty interesting. But isn't that the darndest thing? It is, it is. I wanted to ask you, though, because I think there's people out there who are listening and, and they want to know, are you afraid to die? No! The, next, the final time. My goodness, no. All death is is a change of scenery and a change of clothes. <laughs> change of clothes. Yeah, but what if, you, what if, you know, nobody wants to go to that hellish place. You know, I don't, I don't want that one. <laughs> I don't want the nice one. <laughs> <laughs> Well, we all do, but but you go to wherever you resonate. Right. It's all vibrational. You go to wherever you resonate. But but the neat thing is uh, that the system is Mm open-ended. So there's no such thing as staying in hell. There's no such thing as staying in what we call heaven. Mm -hmm. It's open-ended. It's an unlimited system. You go on and on and on and on and on. You can get out of hell. You can go on and on and on. We only have a couple minutes, but I want to ask you, the kids who have the hellish experiences, do you think that they're remembering from a past life? No, they didn't sound like it, although who's to say I'm no authority. Yeah. Right. Um, it, it, it seemed to be other issues that were going on. Certainly in the big book of near-death experiences, there's one particular child's case that had a hellish case where he's met by Satan, and he drew pictures. Wow. And it's 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 just a real interesting case. Now, were his um, parents telling him he was a bad boy or anything like that, or his school teachers did? Okay, okay. So maybe it's related to what his school teachers told him. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I don't. I don't think anybody really knows. What we can do as researchers is is look at these cases. Uh, spend some time with the parents, look at significant others, spend some time with the school teachers, spend some time with other people that's, that are involved, have them draw draw their story if possible, and, 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 you know, just look at it from 360 degrees. Now, with children, also with adults, but with children especially, I recommend to the parents and to the child, make your book. Make your book. Draw your experience. I don't mm-hmm. care if it's construction paper. I don't care if it's typing paper. I don't care if it's held together with ribbons. Draw. Have a cover. Name your cover. Draw. Draw your experience. It's, if there's a a newspaper clipping, put that in there. If there's poems, put that in there. Uh, whatever you want to say, put it in your book. And every person I have ever uh, talked with who had a childhood experience, even if they were 40 or 50 years old and were remembering their childhood experience, when they made their book, it changed their life. Wow. I have one more question for you because we we're almost out of time, but I do have a really dear friend on, on uh, in our chat room tonight, and he was having, um, I guess he's been trying to have his, his 
uh, talk to his guys, go to the other side, um, have one of you know shamanic experience. And do you have any books on that? Did you write anything about how to do that? A shamanic experience? No. I've had them myself. I have a shamanic worldview. Well, I was raised that way. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the way I grew up. And that's what helped me to keep my sanity. Uh, there are a number of books out there that are very good. Uh, but there was one in particular that hmm, I, wrote, I wrote the forward to. I, it might be on my website. You might look in other books section and see okay. if that one on shamanic... Um, um, uh, development is in there, um, but there's a, there's a number of really good books out now on shamanism. So I'm sure he's going to be able be able to find whatever yeah. he wants. We are out of time again. Oh. We have been listening to, to Dr. Pmh Atwater. You can go to her website. Uh, it, is it it's dratwater.com? Isn't it? Oh, no, or pmhatwater.com. Uh, yeah, pmhatwater.com. And you can and I find all of her books and gazillions of books <laughs> and all of her stuff and <laughs> lots of blogs and lots of stories and lots of amazing things. As you can tell, she is an amazing woman. So uh, thank you again for coming on, Miss Well, Unstoppable. thank you, Frankie. I think you're amazing, too. Thank you. And, I, and as soon as the new books come out, the little kitty books come out, um, I'd certainly like to have you come back and we can talk about those. That's going to be exciting. <laughs> okay, dear. <laughs> thank you, and thanks to everybody. Have a good uh, evening and watch the presidential debate. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's on tonight in a couple of minutes. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I'll let you go then. You go watch it. Take care. Bye-bye. <laughs> you too. Bye-bye. Good night. Good night.